Amen. Tim, I'm going to use this microphone this morning, just because I didn't find my other one. Um, <laughs> actually, I think it's in here somewhere. Amen. All right. Um, perhaps uh, you've had the opportunity, I don't know, maybe because you were bored or something, to read um, Oscar Wilde's uh, The Soul of Man Under Socialism. Uh, Oscar Wilde can, for some, may be familiar with his work. Um, you know, years ago I read this book, and, and Oscar is, uh, Wilde is, is in this, really talking about how uh, socialism and the, and the socialistic uh, uh, world in which he lived, how it was oppressive to him, in particular in his artwork and in his uh, writings, and, and how socialism was oppressive and pushing down on him. And one of the things that Wilde is doing and arguing in his work is, is pushing against authority. He's saying, you know, basically all authority is bad, you know, whether it's a democracy or whether it's a dictatorship or, or some sort of uh, in-between, like a socialistic understanding of, of economic system, Wilde concludes that all authority is bad. All authority, in essence, is evil. All authority oppresses, oppresses uh, people. And he wrote one line in there, which, which you may be familiar with, which is sort of one thing that sort of stands out in his work, and that is, there is no necessity to separate the monarch from the mob. So what he's saying is, is that, okay, whether you're the people on the street sort of fighting in a, it's sort of a gang mob type way, so, so that's one type of authority, like the authority on the street, or the monarch, the, the dictatorship, the, the people of power, the ones that are in appointed positions. He says all authority is equally bad. All authority is equally bad. So, so for a while, he concludes that all authority, any type of authority, whether, whether it's on the street, you know, in the hands of the people, right, democracy, or in some sort of monarch, uh, some sort of uh, way in which there's a crown and there's some people. He says all of it's bad. From top to bottom, whoever has authority is going to use it for evil. As we consider that, I think he's wrong. I think he's wrong. Sure, we live in a broken and fallen world where, where oftentimes we are against authority because authority is abused. We see it abused by politicians. We see it abused by teachers and sadly even by parents. Authority is abused on so many levels and we like Wilde could conclude that all authority is bad because, because of the horrors of abuse of authority we can reject it and say, you know what, I'm going to be my own authority. Even when we as individualistic people begin to consider authority, we believe in authority because we want it for ourselves. We want authority over our own lives to make decisions the way we want to make them. We don't want the government telling us how to spend our money or where, where we send our money. We don't want the government telling us how we're going to you know, uh, use our property. We don't want the government telling us this, that, or the other. We, we are against authority. Even in the Christian life, we see that authority can be rejected. We can see, even in our own lives, we have a tendency to kind of stand a little little away from authority, whether it be a pastor or a teacher or even God's Word. We stand away and say, well, I'm ultimately the authority here. And so when we go and read God's Word, we don't sit under God's Word, we sit above it. 
We go to God's Word as, as authority. Rather than finding authority from God's Word, we go to God and tell God's Word what we will believe and what we won't believe. We can be like Thomas Jefferson and grab a pair of scissors and begin to cut out parts of the Bible that we don't want. And friends, I hope that we consider this morning in our time how subtle it is in our own hearts where we reject God's authority in our life. Where subtly and maybe even not knowingly, we are cutting from God's Word. We have, over the last few months, two months or so, considered Mark's Gospel And we've come to chapter 2. Over the last few weeks, we've considered who Jesus is. And Mark has been in his gospel, according to him, demonstrating to us the identity of Christ. Helping us really conceptualize our mind, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? and, And what has he come to do? Who is he and what has he come to do? And this morning we turn to Mark chapter 2. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, there should be one in front of you. Uh, You're welcome to have that. You're welcome to take that home if you're going to read it. and so that's if you don't have a copy. If you're looking for a, you know, another Bible, though, well, that's not for you. But uh, if you are don't have a copy of God's Word that you can read, right? You know, maybe you, you, the translation you have just not readable. Take that and read it. Read God's Word. Uh, and to invite you, that's that's our gift to you this morning. So, Mark chapter two, beginning in verse one. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days. It was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they they removed the roof above him, and they made an opening, and they let him down, let the paralytic down on the bed in which he lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, said in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Praise God. We see here a beginning of a new section in Mark's Gospel. 
Mark has been over the weeks uh, in the past been considering Jesus' early days in ministry, some of the early activities. And, and when we get to chapters 2, we see a de- decisive shift in that there's an extra character in the story. There's an extra group of people that have sort of been invited into the story now. And over the next weeks ahead, as we consider the, the, the verses ahead, we're going to see Jesus encountering the religious leaders on various levels. And as Jesus begins to encounter them, at the center of this all is going to be authority. It's going to be who has authority. We considered uh, a few weeks ago in chapter 1 and verse 22... And they were astonished at his teaching, for Jesus taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Perhaps you remember when Jesus was there in Capernaum before and he was doing ministry there. The people were astonished because they could hear that something was off in the way Jesus talked to them and the way he communicated. The things he said came with authority and not like the scribes who, who were using tradition and other people's interpretation. They were standing on the interpretation of others where Jesus was standing alone on his own interpretation. Even in verse 27 And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Jesus taught as one who had authority, as one who was authoritative. In Mark's gospel, he uses that word authority over ten times to describe who Jesus was. Jesus had authority. He gives it to his apostles. And so we see Jesus. And then in verse 11, chapter 11 and verse 28, we see Mark telling us this. And they came to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? That's a question that is at the heart of these passages. Whose authority do you have, Jesus? Who gave you this authority to speak like this and do the things that you're doing? And so we see in this passage this morning, the the point, the the thrust of this passage is is to seek to continue to demonstrate and prove to us Jesus' identity as the Christ, the Son of God, who has power and authority to heal which ultimately points to his authority and power to forgive sins. To forgive sins. We see in this passage a a, a grand picture of Jesus' authority, not only to make sick people well, but ultimately to forgive the sins of others. In this narrative, we are confronted with really two groups of people. Two really two groups of people that I want us to see this morning, and at the center of both of them is this man who claims to have authority to forgive sins. The first group we see have a faith-fueled effort. A faith-fueled effort. Look at these men who are coming here. Notice that Jesus is teaching. We're told by Mark that he's there at home teaching. Capernaum has kind of become home base for him. We don't know if he's perhaps at Peter's house or, or maybe at another house. But, but at this point in Jesus' ministry there in Galilee, right there in Galilee, he is, he is taking up sort of the central headquarters of his ministry is there. And he's there teaching. 
And we're told by Mark that, that there's no more room, that there's so many people gathered around Jesus hearing that, that there's not even room at the door, right? I mean, imagine a picture here of Jesus teaching in, 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 a, in, a, lot, in a room, in the main room of the house. It's, it's filled with people. And then, then in the doorway is a whole bunch of people standing on the front porch just trying to hear what Jesus is saying. Just to get a word of what He is saying. And, and Mark tells us that He's preaching the Word to them. I think this is... Usage by Mark is synonymous to, to really verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what words was Jesus saying that night? He was most definitively telling them about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God has come in His coming. In the coming of the King, the gospel has come. And so we see this crowd is packed into this house and, and, and in the midst of him, if you will, preaching a grand sermon, this amazing interruption comes. Amazingly, in the midst of this, these men are met with a great obstacle. We're told that in this story that, that there is a group of men. We don't know how many men there were. We know there was at least four. I think it's a little ambiguous. Ambi- it's kind of a little unclear. Was there more than four men? You know, four men in the paralytic? Perhaps there was more than that. I think at least there was four men in here. And so we're told these men are coming, bringing their friend to Jesus. They're coming. Unstoppable faith. We see a, a faith that won't stop. They're, they're met with this obstacle, but yet they, they'll do anything to get their friend to Jesus. Anything to take their friend so that he can be healed by Jesus. And so Mark tells us that he, they, they climb up on a roof. Perhaps they go to the neighbor's house. They're oftentimes in, in this time period, in the architecture of the time there would have been stairs going up to the flat roof, you know, because of no air conditioning. Uh, oftentimes folks would get out there on the roof, you know, on a cool night, a way to kind of cool down, if you will, if the house was warm. And so access to a roof would have been relatively simple. The, the Getting on the roof wasn't the issue. It was getting inside that was the issue. Literally, Mark tells us here that they unroofed the roof, right? They, they, they unroofed the roof and they dug around in there. Right? I just imagine this picture of these four guys up on this roof, digging into the roof, right? Ripping the shingles off the roof. Like, what are these brothers doing up there? What's going on? They're just in there digging around on the, in the roof, and they're, they're trying to get to Jesus. And we could see vividly the effort that they're going into to get their friend to Jesus. Not even a roof will stop them from getting to their friend, to their friend, to Jesus. And so they go and they're digging and they let him down, uh, down and, and making this opening, let him down. And, and which, I mean, just imagine Jesus is teaching clearly, you know, as they're digging this roof off, they're, you know, like, what's going on, Jesus? The, the ceiling's crumbling before us. What is going on, Jesus? What's happening here? What is, what is going on? Is this the end of time, perhaps? And, and so Jesus is teaching, Jesus is preaching, and He's interrupted by these men. Unstoppable faith. A faith Jesus said was visible. A faith Jesus said was visible. Jesus says in verse 
In chapter 4, he said, excuse me, in verse 4, he says, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let him down. They let the paralytic down. And when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus here sees the faith of these men and that they will stop at nothing to get to Jesus. That there was no obstacle that was going to prevent them to getting to Jesus. Their faith would not be stopped by a crowd. Their faith would not be stopped by a roof. Nothing would stop them from getting their friend to Jesus. Because they knew His greatest need was Jesus. That Jesus saw their faith. As Paul tells us in Galatians 2.15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So what was Jesus saying? What, was it their faith or was it their works? What was Jesus saying when he said he saw their faith? I think what Jesus is saying is he saw the evidence of their faith. It wasn't what they were doing that made them that, that, that Jesus was impressed by. Jesus was impressed by the faith that fueled their actions. These men were motivated by their faith. Their faith was what was fueling them to make some really crazy decisions that night. Their faith was what was moving them and changing them and shaping them. And so we want to remember here that it wasn't their actions that Jesus said was glorious but it was the faith that fueled their actions. Paul tells us that salvation is by faith alone and not by works. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, so good works, these men's, the evidence of these men's, these men's faith flew, flowed out of a life of faithfulness in God. There was something about Jesus that got them motivated to take their friend to see him. Perhaps they had heard about him. Clearly they had heard that Jesus could do something for their friend. A man who was paralyzed, a man who could do nothing on his own, a man that relied on others to take him everywhere, a man who was totally and utterly dependent upon others to get him to Jesus. One commentator wrote, Faith is first and foremost not knowledge about Jesus, but active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. Friends, oftentimes we talk about faith in God, faith in Christ, as some sort of intellectual activity. Believe a set of facts about Jesus and you will be saved. Friend, that is not what the Bible paints the picture of faith. Faith is an active trust, a dependency upon the one in which you stand. Faith is a dependency. It's recognizing that one's deepest and most heartfelt needs are found in Him alone. That it's only through faith in Him that one could stand. As we consider the, this faith fueled, we consider this faith, I wonder how we are like this lame man, unable to get to Jesus. Perhaps we are like the four men. 
He'll stop at nothing to get our friend to Jesus. These men were, were not stopped by anything. What is it, though? As you consider these men, what was it about their faith? What was it that made their faith different than our faith? What was it that, that, what was it about it as you consider their faith to go up on that house and begin to dig around in someone else's property, begin to destroy their house and begin to take the roof off their house just to get their buddy down inside? If you consider the radical nature of their faith. Does our faith look anything like it? Is our actions fueled by the same kind of faith? What in us makes us give up in the face of crowds? What what is it though about Christians when, when the opposition rises, when the culture shifts, that we run and cower in fear, afraid? These men weren't afraid of the crowds. They weren't afraid by the size. They weren't afraid of offending anyone. All they wanted to do is get their friend to Jesus. What is it that makes us turn away? What in us is is like the paralyzed man who needs to hear a word of forgiveness? Perhaps that's you this morning. You're like that paralyzed man. You're, you're helpless. You, you can't, you're, you're totally and utterly dependent upon others. This morning, what you need, you're desperate, you're starving, you're thirsting, you're like this man, you're, you're wasting away. Friends, the word that's found in this death-defying, faith-fueled dependency upon Jesus, is Jesus Himself. These men would stop at nothing. These men demonstrated an effort to get their buddy to Jesus. Effort that was fueled by their faith. But we see another group of men in this passage. We see another group of men that, that aren't fueled by faith, but are antagonistic and confrontational. We see in here a perilous confrontation over authority that they will stop at nothing to stop Jesus. Look with me at verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts, why does this man, why why is this fellow speaking like this? He's blaspheming. Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in His Spirit that they thus questioned themselves, said, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Friends, what we see in this passage is a picture of our own brokenness and our own sinfulness. These men were questioning their hearts because their hearts were sinful. Because their hearts were broken. Because what they wanted most was to have the authority that Jesus had. What these men were doing was, was, was deriding Him. Why is this... I like, the NIV, I think, does this best. The NIV says, why is this fellow speaking like this? Right? I think it rules out... The ESV doesn't really pull out the derogatory nature of this comment. They're really saying, what, what are you speaking like that for? What are you doing? You don't have any right to come in here and talk like that. 
What's that fellow over there talking like that for? Who are you? You know. I think it's fascinating though that they're in Jesus' house talking like this. Don't miss it's a it's a very important point. Their authority that they thought they had extended even in someone else's home, which would have been a big disrespect to the homeowner. So they come in Jesus' house and they begin to, who are you to talk like that? Who gave you the authority to speak like that? Who are you to, to speak like this? Only God can forgive sin. And friends, you know what's fascinating? Is they're completely right. Don't diminish what they're saying here. Because what they're saying here is, is definitely true. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? What an excellent question. Only God can forgive sins. Amen? Only God can, can, can cry out to the sinner and say, your sins are pardoned. Consider just a few verses. They're just fascinating. I mean, you just go hundreds of verses in the Old Testament. But here's a few. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him. and This is Moses and the Lord having a little conversation on the mountain. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So there, when the Israelites meet the one true God, Yahweh, on the Mount Sinai there on the side, when God displays His glory to Moses, what is the one attribute that rises to the top? It is that God can forgive sins. Moses walked away with the doctrine that God alone can forgive. That it wasn't the gods of, of the Egyptians that could forgive. It wasn't Molech that could forgive. It wasn't Baal that could forgive. It was Yahweh alone that could forgive. And so David writes a song, Blessed be the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all its benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Or Isaiah, in Isaiah 43, I, I, God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and who will not remember your sins. When God talks about himself, he talks about his ability to forgive sins. Or consider in the new covenant that Jeremiah received and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I'll forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sins no more. And so these scribes are sitting there. Who do you think you are saying what you're saying? You're doing what only God can do. What Jesus was doing that day was was acting, playing God. That's what they saw. They, what they saw Jesus doing that day was playing God. Like He dressed up to act like God, to be like God. Let's imagine. I want, I want you to imagine something. Imagine if I came over to your house today. Right? And I just started gathering stuff up. Just started pulling stuff off the shelves. Just started, and I as they like kind of put up a yard sale sign in the front yard. And I started selling your stuff. Right? I started just selling your stuff away. And you'd be, you'd be like, hey, what are you doing? Right? That's not, that's not your stuff. That's not your stuff. You'd be like, you're stealing from me. Now, why would that be stealing? Because I don't have the authority to sell your stuff. Jesus, what are you doing? You don't have the authority 
to forgive sins. You don't have the authority to, to, to give away forgiveness. Only God can do that. What are you doing? That's not yours to give away. I like what Robert Stein said, commenting on this passage. He says, Jesus is accused of blasphemy, not because he's directly claiming to be God or pronouncing the sacred name of God, but because he acts like God. Jesus is acting like God. He goes on, he's exercising a prerogative in forgiving sins that belongs exclusively to God. Exclusively to God. Jesus is behaving like God. <laughs> You're blaspheming. You can't do that. Through this, we begin to see a clear picture. Before we see that, I, I just want us to pause and consider how are we like these scribes? Soren Kierkegaard, many years ago, wrote a book, and in his book, much of it's not helpful, but one particular part of it's very helpful. And he says, you know, often Christians, when they read the gospel narratives, they read the antagonistic person, the, the antagonizers, the Pharisees and the scribes, and, and they also often read them and, and sit in opposition of them. They, they, they read the gospels like, like they're not them. Right? We're always on Jesus' side, right? We're only, hey, who are you to talk like to Jesus that way, right? When the point of the narrative often is, is that we are the antagonizers. We're the ones that need Jesus' saving word. We are the Pharisees and the scribes, Kierkegaard said. Friend, we are the scribes in this narrative. Jesus, questioning in our hearts. Jesus, you don't have power and authority in my life. Jesus, who are you to say that you can forgive sin? I find that even among Christians. We question whether or not Jesus is able to forgive our sins. And friend, that is what Satan wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that Jesus is not sufficient to save your sins. That what He did on the cross was not powerful enough to forgive your sin, whatever it may be, whatever horrible past you might have, and you, you, you dwell on it, and you think on it, and you say, you know, Jesus isn't sufficient to save you from that. And so what do we do? Well, one of two things. We either despair, we crawl up in a little corner and cry like a baby, or... We go out and we work really, really hard to show Jesus that we are something that He should love. Both positions are wrong. Both positions here lead to ultimate destruction. What Jesus doesn't want is despair. And what He doesn't want from you is for you to think that you're worthy to be saved. But He wants you to come to Him with faith. He wants you to come to Him with faith, trusting Friends, do your doubts and fears demonstrate that you trust in Jesus? When the news is blasted with, with things that could frighten a little child and we stand and frightened over the world and over all the chaos that's going on in the world and these horrible news and, and did you stand in fear? Is your first posture fear and doubt and discouragement? Or is it confidence? God's in control. God is in control. 
Jesus' words of forgiveness are, are affronted by these antagonistic oppositions from these religious leaders. An opposition that he that we see in our own hearts and our own lives as we reject Jesus. But finally, what we see most clearly in this narrative is Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority demonstrated. This man came to be healed. And he left not only healed, but forgiven. You know, oftentimes we come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. And he gets it straightened out, doesn't he? He gets it straightened out. Just imagine for a moment these, these men are lowering Jesus down. They're up on the roof. And Jesus says to them, your sins are forgiven. Wait, wait a minute. That's not what we came for. We didn't come for that. Wait a minute. No, we can't. He, he needs to be healed, Jesus. What he needs is to be healed. And friends, we say that same thing when we say what people need most is a, a bed to sleep in and, and food to eat. What people need most, they need those things. There's nothing wrong with giving those things. Nothing wrong with, with Jesus healing this man. But what did this man need most? He needed his sins forgiven. Friend, what your sinful, rebellious friend needs isn't to be cleaned up. He needs to receive Jesus. That's what he needs. He needs forgiveness of sins. That's what we need. Friend, what we see in this passage is that the greatest need of the hour isn't for us to be put back together, but for our hearts to be changed. Our greatest need isn't to stop doing what we've been doing, but for our entire lives to be transformed. God is in the business of changing behavior. He's in the business of changing hearts. That's what He's after. He's after our hearts. He's after our lives. He doesn't want to just change a few bad behaviors that you got going on in your life. You know? That's not, he's not interested you quit smoking. That's not what he's like, oh, I just, you know, that's what I'm after here. I want to save you so you, you know, you have, so you can live a couple more years. Friend, you're still going to die. Right? What you need is Jesus. What that man needed that day wasn't to be healed. He needed, he needed Jesus to forgive him of his sins. And in the midst of this, Jesus demonstrates his ability to forgive. He says, but in order that you may know. You know, Jesus, it's real easy for you to, you, you know, to say that his sin's forgiven. Who could prove it? I mean, think of it. who could prove that this man's sins were forgiven? Nobody there, right? I mean, nobody's going to be like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, you, you forgave me. But he demonstrates that he has the power to forgive sins because he says to the man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus' healing of this lame man was a tangible little fruit that hangs in our lives as a reminder that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Friends, in our own lives, the Bible calls that the fruit of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit that are manifest in our lives as we manifest transformation in our own hearts and lives, it's evidence to us that Jesus has forgiven us. That Jesus has given us new life. We recognize in our own lives Jesus' power. And we did it even today in our service. When we pray and confess sin. And we recognize that there is pardon in Christ. It's because we believe that Jesus has the power to forgive sin. 
But friend, I don't want you to leave here and miss the point of this whole thing. That is that when Jesus forgives sin, when God declares a sinner forgiven, it isn't so that he can live his life now, run around town instead of being carried around, live a life of independence rather than dependence like he had been on. You see, the purpose here was the glory of God. And he arose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them, so that all were amazed and glorified God. We ain't ever seen nothing like this before. Friend, that's what this world needs to see. This world needs to see transformed lives. Let's pray. Holy Father, Father, I pray this morning that our lives would be shaped by your authority. Father, that we would consider today in our time together, our time as we leave over lunch or throughout the week, consider how in our own lives, in our own hearts, how we reject your authority. Where we are in opposition to it. Father, I pray also that we would be models of individuals and as a congregation who would submit to your authority. Submit to the authority of your word in our lives and that we would take our direction from, from your word and not what we think is right or what society tells us is right, but what your word says is right. Father, I pray that as a congregation, what we point to the most is the power of the gospel to make helpless, lame people walk again. That we would see the power of the gospel demonstrated in transformed lives. May we stand in awe and glorify you as you work among our hearts and lives, bringing the gospel to the centerpiece of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.